We'll be opening up Matthew 6 again this morning, and we're talking about prayer. And these days, I think the one thing that the Lord certainly wants us to focus on and be doing in our world is praying. And praying is not always easy to do and be a part of. It takes tremendous faith. It takes real faith to do that. And praying well is something that Jesus wants us to participate in and do and enjoy and, and work through. And it is uh, powerful. It is powerful. As much as things are happening out there in society, bills are being passed, things are happening that are shocking for us to see that are being put forward in the House or the Senate that could alter our culture. God is not losing. God is not in a heavyweight bout up against the ropes being punched in the face by the devil. God's kingdom is advancing and God's will is being done and it's up to us to join in concert with God's will through praying. We pray according to his will and his will is done and anything we pray that is synchronized with God's will is, is happening and, and that's effective praying. How do we do that? We need to do it. We need to be part of the praying corpse, right? We need to be part of God's work and God's mission and ministry. And one of the great ways to be active is through prayer. There's a man who had to go from our church for decades who had to go to the emergency room. I need to found out this morning, need to call on him. But I was talking to him, giving a pastoral just visit by phone. And he was saying, you know, my life's going to probably alter because of physical health and this malady and the ministries that I've done forever are probably going to have to change up. I said, well, there's one ministry that you can continue to do, and that is the ministry of prayer. The ministry of prayer. It's for all of us. It's an amazing ministry to participate in. It's amazing to, to seek the throne of God in the way that he wants us to do it. But how do we do it? How do we sustain it? When times are hard, like, okay, you know, we have the pandemic, we, your business might be failing. Those are health scares and uh, money scares are all real trials. And it draws us to pray during that time, doesn't it? We, we seek the Lord and we, we go humbly before the throne. And when something is, is life-altering in our lives, we pray. But even in those moments, we begin to adjust and shift our thinking and accommodate the circumstance and sort of live with it and then our prayers become dry or fade, the passion anyway, right? This is the experience of all of us. So I want to say that when the disciples asked Jesus to teach them to pray and he did so with such simplicity and clarity, we should dive in and find out what they found out because it's essential for our lives it begins with this concept that I've been pushing for the last couple of weeks in the pulpit, and that's the, the dividing line between coming with an attitude as a consumer or coming to church as a worshiper, coming as a taker or a giver, as a living sacrifice or a critic critiquing what's going on here. The, the Bible calls us to attribute worth and value and adoration to God who is worthy. We say he is worthy. A consumer might ask uh, on a morning like this, well, how's my morning going so far? <laughs> who am I sitting next to and how's the seat feel? Did I, I have trouble finding a parking place? Were the doors clearly marked? Was I welcomed? Is it friendly enough here? Did I have trouble dropping my kids off? How about the announcements? How'd they go? I mean, I missed one of them. I'll say it at the end. But anyway, yeah, right? How's the bulletin? Is everything clear? What about people sitting around me? Are they, are they, did I like that? Was the music too contemporary or was it too traditional? And there are people who would say both about what just happened. It's too contemporary or it's too traditional or I wish it was this or that. All that I might be on a level fair to help bring about excellence to ask those questions. I understand all of that kind of um, excellence work that we need to be part of. But really, a lot of that 
fades away if you come as a worshiper instead of a consumer. You're not here to buy something. You're here to give something. And as you give, you receive. It just happens. You give and the Lord gives blessing back to you. And it's a beautiful thing. And even in prayer, it is. We've been talking about realms here, the categories of religion, which are giving, how we give and how we pray and how we fast. And all that is covered in chapter six in this section, these categories, these areas that we need to do spiritually as Christians. Uh, A lot of religions do these things, giving, praying, fasting, a lot of self-deprivation work. A lot of those things happen, but there's only one true religion, one God, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, right? There's one Jesus. And we want to do it the right way, not in a defiled way, not as a hypocrite who's a faker, a play actor. We don't want to be the babbling Gentile who's just praying prayers to say prayers and say things to say things, to try to conjure up some sort of magic event. All that is just false religion. All the um, Matthew 5 chapter is the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus is peeling back the layers of religious externalism where you're trying to do good, be a do-gooder. And do it all under religious legalism that is, uh, that's covered by your wrong interpretation of scripture. Jesus corrects those false interpretations and brings it right to the heart, whether he's talking about greed or talking about lust or anger, all those things. I mean, he just targets the heart in chapter five. And now in chapter six, he begins to say, that's what you shouldn't do. And this is how you should do it. That's the wrong way. And chapter six is the right way. And we're looking at this category of prayer. The question is, what does God's word say we need to constitute a strong and healthy prayer life? Something we all wish for. We all want it. And and two factors are always at play when you're asking that question. When you're searching for a good prayer life, it begins with two things. And these are by way, way of review. Number one, it begins and ends with your vision of God. Your vision of God. Is your God big or is your God small in your mind? Is your God biblical or is your God false? That's basically it. Our vision of God is going to grow as we grow, as we learn, as we are captured by the scripture and we understand truth, we see a bigger God, but he's big and bigger than we could imagine. He's incomprehensibly big. But if he's small, it'll suck the life out of you. You'll have a joylessness as you try to pray to a God you think is your peer or your buddy or somebody you should pal around with. A casual approach to a small God ends in prayerlessness and a lot of times hopelessness and even disappointment when you're not seeing your prayers answered because really at that point you're praying to yourself and not to God. We praise a big, great God, who is a king. And if you think about Old Testament worship, all of the tabernacle worship was to elevate the Israelites' mindset about God when they would approach him in worship. And they came as worshipers at risk of being killed if they did it the wrong way. There were washings. There's the outer court, the inner court, the inner sanctum, the outer sanctum. There's, there's the sacrifice, the offering that was to be given. There was a priest that you worked through methodically. There were washings. There were all kinds of things that were to be obeyed. And these were not just pro forma. They weren't just externals. These were not a Raiders of the Lost Ark tripwire that God was waiting to get you in a gotcha moment. None of that was at play. All that was happening in the Old Testament ceremonial system was meant to elevate the mindset of the worshiper as he approached God. And that even was an insufficient sort of means to bring people to God. They were to repent in their own hearts and come with a heart of thanksgiving. And that's what David said. You don't even want my offering or sacrifice unless it's a brokenhearted spirit. In the New Testament, God has broken our hearts and it's through Christ and his shed blood. So do we have a high priest now? Yes, it's Jesus. Do we have an offering now? Yes, it was Jesus. Do we have a, a, a temple court to go into? Yes, it's going through the fellowship of, uh, of Jesus. Holiness is represented in the inner and outer sanctum and it's been answered with a veil that was rent in two at the cross and we come to participate in the holiness and the holy worship of God giving our sacrifices of praise through Jesus. And so all of the Old Testament imagery is reborn in our hearts in New Testament worship, where we share worship with this king. Well, tying this back to, are you a consumer or worshiper? Let me ask the question, what's the difference between your prayers if you're a consumer or worshiper? If you're a worshiper, 
you're approaching a, you know, in your mind, you're approaching a powerful king. Just think of a medieval king that you could, you know, if you came in in a cavalier way out of some necessity, you could be killed for that, right? When the biblical accounts where Esther, um, this, this one dubbed queen, right? This unlikely queen who was a Jew and, and her Jewishness was a non-factor until it was, right? He just, the king thought she was beautiful, entered and, and she's entered into um, the court as queen. But even then she was approaching her king with fear because when she knew that her people, the Jews, were under a possibility of being um, destroyed, a genocide could have been waged. She had her people pray and fast three days and nights before approaching her king to execute her plan. Esther 5, 1 and 3. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's quarters while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance of the palace. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight and he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand and Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. And the king said to her, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given you even to half of my kingdom. This just represents, I think, the relationship we have with God. We come in a humble manner. We we don't forget who he is. We remember that God is big and great and awesome. But we also remember that we have been made sons and daughters. We're part of the king's court. And we come humbly to him with our request. And in Christ, he gives us eternal life, which is, in one sense, everything. Everything. He's given us everything we need. Everything. Up to half of the kingdom. How about come into all of the kingdom? That's incredible. It's incredible. Bathsheba. Um, First Kings um, chapter one talks about the account where there was a coup within the government to uh, crown um, someone to follow King David, who was aged at this point. And Bathsheba finds out about this. And Solomon was supposed to be the incumbent, the following king. And so she is challenged to come in and approach her husband, who's the mother of her son, Solomon, um, David's son. And he's, she's approaching an aged king to pay homage. And it says in 1 Kings 1.15, So Bathsheba went to the king in his chamber. Now the king was very old. And Abishag, the Shunammite, was attending to the king. Bathsheba bowed and paid homage to the king. And the king said, What do you desire? And she said to him, oh, My lord, you swore to your servant by the Lord your God, saying, Solomon, your son, shall reign after me, and he shall sit on my throne. And it happened. And it was through these examples of yielded submission that we can see how we are supposed to approach God. We come, we're, we're, we're family members with God, but we don't talk to him casually, arrogantly or vainly. Our culture has drifted in this. Our church culture is ill-prepared to face the challenges that our country is going to bring to the church. It's my job sort of as a pulpit prophet just to say, hey, it's coming. It's here. It's coming. It's going to crank up the Bible promises. It will And so if we are approaching God in a cavalier way with a lesser God, a lesser view, a lesser understanding of God, we're ill-prepared to take on the onslaught of Satan through this world. We come with a yielded posture and that attributes worth to God. Your prayer will energize if you're attributing worth. Your prayers will shrink if you have casual indifference with a lesser or false view of God, people approach God with vanity and vulgar vulgarities. They just want to let it out before the Lord, right? In cavalier, sort of a catharsis. And that's not true prayer, but that's put forth in settings. Giving value to God brings life and difference to the king, really will kill you inside. I'm taking a slower approach. In this section, you can tell I'm slowing down because we need prayer. We need tracks to run on to pray better. If we can come in and out through the back door of this moment in the text, praying better, it's worth it. We need to pray well. We need to be a praying church, not praying to just pray, 
not just praying to check it off, but praying Jesus' priorities, praying Jesus' petitions. All of the Lord's Prayer that's listed here is our, our petitions. They're petitions. Look back at verse 8. This brings us back to um, this large vision of God. Do not be like them. Who? Don't be like the hypocrites. Don't be babblers. Don't be like the Gentiles who are pagan. They're pagan-like and they're praying. For your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. We pray to God who is omniscient, who knows everything. Jesus warns not to be like them because why? He knows it all. He knows it all. We pray to the biblical God. Second, not only can our vision be too small when we pray and that will kill your prayer life. Secondly, our content can be messed up. What is the content of my prayers? You know, it's the, now I lay me down to sleep, but pray the Lord my soul to keep if I should. I mean, you know, these sort of mantras, praying things like we're reciting the Pledge of Allegiance. And it's the old um, misstep in prayer when you're called to pray, be praying in prayer meeting and suddenly you ask God's blessing on the food and it's nine o'clock at night, you know. That stuff happens. It's mindless, headless praying. But what is the contents of our prayers? Are our prayer requests on or off track? Are we heaping up, verse 7, empty phrases? Are we praying the words that, that he wants us to pray according to Scripture? Not babbling words. The, the, the prayer template here that he gives us should be likened to, and I, this is really key, it should be likened to like a mold that we are filling with our prayers. Each phrase here in verses 9 through 13 is like a different cup in the pan where you're, where you're making cupcakes. And you pour out your soul. You pour out your distresses. You pour out what's upsetting you. You pour out what's difficult. You pour out your hardship. You pour out what's wrong in the world. You pour out what you think should be right. You pour out your heart for your family. You pour out your heart for lost people that you really want to have come into the kingdom. And you're pouring out and you're pouring in. And you're really filling out these petitions in the Lord's Prayer. That's what is going on. This isn't just something to be memorized or spoken as a liturgical formula. Um, Jesus is de-emphasizing this. There's even a difference between the account in Luke 11, the Lord's Prayer, and this account to show that it's not a liturgy to be spoken in a religious manner. I like to sing the Lord's Prayer. I think we should memorize this so that we have access to it while, while praying. But the old hymn writer said it best, tell out my soul the greatness of our God, Right? Tell out. That's what we're doing when we pray. It's a roadmap for spiritual vitality. So all the disciples then and now, they have always wanted prayer. We want prayer. We want to pray well. Luke accounts when a disciple who was representing the group of disciples was watching Jesus pray. This is Luke chapter 11. And uh, this disciple goes to Jesus, and it says in Luke 11, 1, Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Listen to this, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. He's going, there's something unique that I've just encountered watching you pray. And this wasn't him reciting the Lord's prayer, the disciples' prayer. It, it is... The, the experience of watching Jesus get with God. And, and guess what? We know that John the Baptist used to be able to get with God and his disciples ask him how to do it. We're coming to you. I'm coming in the name of my group. Tell me how to do this. Why did, this is curious to me. Why, why do you ask for this rather than everything else that he could have asked for? How do we raise the dead? How do we heal the sick? How do we teach better? How do we, how do we, how do we, how do we? Teach us to pray. Why? Because these disciples knew that this vital connection meant everything for the power that they observed flowing out of Jesus' life. They knew that prayer was the source of power. It was his source of passion where Jesus and John the Baptist drew their strength. It's where we draw our strength is through prayer. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much, but Elijah was the example of that who has a like nature like our own. He prayed like a normal human and powerful things happen. 
Why? Because when we pray according to God's will, when we pray according to these petitions, when we fill out these petitions, we're filling out our prayers in accordance with what God really wants to do. And then he does it and we go, wow, that's awesome. It wasn't my prayer that did that. It was just my prayer that synchronized my heart with his. And that petition was answered in the dynamic of a loving relationship. It's amazing. It's a great reminder to understand how necessary, how powerful, how important, and how amazing true prayer really is. It is. Jesus gives this in great simplicity. What does vital connection look like through these words? Jesus always prayed before massive teaching ministries or when he would heal the sick or raise the dead or cast out demons. He was always praying. Mark 1, 35, rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place and there he prayed before choosing his leaders, before choosing the 12 apostles who he would invest in deeply and intimately and then leave the ministry within their hands for it to carry out the mission he prayed all night Luke 12 6 12 in these days he went out to the mountain to pray and all night he continued in prayer to God why was what God wanted Jesus was following everything according to the father's will and plan he's just following every step of the way don't you want, because I know I do, a God consciousness as we walk through every single day, every single hour, every single encounter? Don't you long for what Jesus had? Jesus is perfect. Jesus is the son of God, but his perfection didn't, didn't neuter his prayer life. It didn't dismantle what he knew, know he needed to do. The fact that he was sinless and human and God makes him the perfect example of what it looks like to be in a God-conscious, humble posture, walking in, in a prayerfulness, wanting to do the Lord's will every step of the way. The disciples knew that if they got prayer right, everything else would fall into place because this was what they saw in Jesus' life. This is how he lived. John 5, 19. Truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, the son does likewise. What did he, how did he see what the father was doing? Through prayer. John six thirty eight. For I've come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is praying. And when we pray in the world that we are living in, it cancels fear and creates confidence. It does that. That's the result. And so we're brought to, to our text. Look at verse 9. It's just simplicity. Pray then like this. Don't be like those people. Don't be the hypocrites. Don't be the... Don't pray like a pagan. Don't pray like a play actor. Pray then like this. Do this. He taught them with simplicity. Luke eleven two, said, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Matthew 6, 9, pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Now, I had a discussion with some men earlier. Should I say hallowed or hallowed? I'm just going to call it out. If I feel like I'm in sort of a King James state of mind, I guess it's hallowed. It's really hallowed. All it means, it's a word, even people don't use hallowed very much, these hallowed halls. But uh, it just means holy. It's hagiadzo. It's holy. It's set apart. Holy be your name. Hallowed be your name. Jesus is simple. He's clear. He's not calling for vain repetition or, or verbatim recitation. He's not saying this, that we should say like a mantra or a magical formula. I like to sing the Lord's Prayer. I like to say it. But we're supposed to use it. It's, it's a guideline for us for praying. It's praying priorities. It's praying what's on the Lord's heart. If we want to know what God wants us to know about him and know about what he's doing in the world, then we pray these priorities. Because I want to remind you of something that I said earlier in the message so far. God's not losing. Our country going down. There was a guy who confessed in a men's group this week. I've been dis disappointed in our world, and it's, it's bringing me down, our country. 
I'm getting down because I'm praying God for baseball and apple pie. I want it again. Bring it back. What if God doesn't want to do it that way? God's not losing. He's not failing. He's building his kingdom. He's always going to win. He's always winning. And we're praying that his kingdom comes, his will be done. And so we approach in this understanding as we pray these priorities. Well, you say, well, why did Jesus say pray these things? And why didn't you just point us to David's Psalms? Well, David's prayers basically are in no contradiction whatsoever to the Lord's Prayer. David's praying in time and space in his own life and heart and reality. And there's no comparison to the passion and pathos of the Psalms. And we should use the Psalms to sing and pray as a prayer book that's inspired and given to us. But we understand that it's more him modeling the passion of what he was working through in those moments. And we can pray along those tracks, but we might have other things that we need to pray about, in particular to our life circumstances or to our world's needs. Hannah prayed, her prayer is like that. Think of Mary's prayers. They're recorded for us in scripture. Think of Paul's prayers at the beginning of epistles. All of these are great guidelines to learn from and and pray along the lines of, but here is the template that really can be overlaid over any one of those prayers and should be overlaid over our prayers. There's no contradiction here between those prayers and our prayers. This just clarifies the path of priorities that we need to pray in our own style, our own language, with our own heart, with our own needs. It's the mold that we fill with our hearts. Our prayers are cast into this and it ensures that we're praying according to God's will. That's the key. Praying in this way ensures you're caring about the right God and caring about what God cares about. If you're taking notes, it's praying like Jesus. That will mean you pray these six priorities. You're praying these six priorities. You pray these six priorities, you're praying like Jesus prayed. You're traversing six mile markers into the presence of God according to his will. The first is this. Pray to God who is both near and far. Near and far. That's what this means. Pray then like this, verse 9, first priority. Our Father in heaven. He's both near and he's far. He's our Father. Intimacy is reflected in that language. He's ours. We're his. He's our Father. Jesus would have used the word in Aramaic, Papa. He's our Daddy. We are adopted children, Romans 8, for which we cry, Abba, Father. Galatians also, Galatians 4, 6, same thing. We have the Holy Spirit that resonates with this relationship. He's a father who loves you, who disciplines the ones that he loves. He chastens those who are his. We're in that relationship, but not only is he near, he's also transcendent and glorious. He's outside of time and space and he makes his abode in heaven that he also created. The word our reflects the idea that we're praying as part of God's greater plan. It's not just me, my, I, I, me, my, my prayer. <laughs> I, I, me, my, oh man, I got so much going on. Oh, prayer, 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 prayer. I'm just looking in the mirror at me when I pray. And then your prayer just stops, right? You go, uh, no, no. I'm praying in the secret place, verse six, chapter six, six, secret place behind a shut door with God in intimacy who sees me in secret, but I'm seeking him as, with a recognition that all the saints for all times, have been seeking the Lord, and I'm doing it in concert with them. I'm praying as a member of the church. I'm praying as a a body part in the body of Christ. I'm praying as a living stone that is making up the temple of God. I'm praying as as a, a, a holy priest that's part of a holy nation. I'm praying in concert with his greater will. My prayer is a puzzle piece, perhaps about my life, But my prayer and my puzzle piece is fitting into a greater puzzle that represents God's greater plan, his will being done. Modern media pictures this, at least it does to me. Um, You know, we moved up here away from everywhere, away from everybody, and social media followed me, right? Everybody's following everybody. And I know for some people they say, enough, I'm not going to be a part of that. But, but I mean, whether if you have one of these devices, you're one ding, ping, 
this, that, drop, bump, bump, and you are living life in concomitant dynamism with everybody else's life that you sort of choose to live that way with. You know things, events and life circumstances that are happening, and there's great advantage to um, to that kind of network and some disadvantage, but that is happening and is a reality, and it's reflective of, of God's will that's happening in all the church throughout all the nations at all the times and all the peoples of the earth that are his. We pray in concert with that as his will is being done. There's a corporate nation, um, nature to our prayer, but there's also a personal nature to this. He is our father. Do you know that Jesus loves you and loves you to pray? And he loves you personally through your enfeebled prayers. And I don't, I mean no disrespect. I'm looking at myself when I say that. How we pray and how well we pray is all sort of needs to be understood in the context of Jesus is wanting you to pray. He desires you. Remember what he said to the woman at the well in John 4? He seeks true worshipers. Seeks. He wants time with you. He's seeking you. The intimacy is reflected well in the account of Mary Magdalene when she saw the Lord Jesus at the garden tomb. Jesus had been raised. One of the first, the first encounter we know was between Mary Magdalene and Jesus. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me for I have not yet ascended to the father, but go to my brothers and say to them, and this phrase is our phrase. Listen to this. I'm ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. What a statement. Mary Magdalene, seven demons cast out of her, a woman who was worldly, redeemed, saved, made new. I'm recognizing you're not the gardener, you're Jesus. You're my teacher. I'm clinging to you. And Jesus' comfort is this. Your father is my father. My God is your God. The same relationship that Jesus has and had on earth with his heavenly father is the exact same relationship that you have access to having here on earth that you will have in heaven. Just grasp that for a second. You have access to the same relationship that Jesus modeled for us while he was on earth that strengthened him, that guided his ministry and mission. You have that kind of access. And it is our responsibility And it is the Bible's accountability for us to access him in this way, to love him, heart, mind, soul, and strength, praying without ceasing, loving him, where the issue of have you prayed lately is really fading to the background of your own mind. It's just, I'm always praying because I love the Lord. And there are specific and unique ways to get alone with God, and that's important to do. But we should be walking with the Lord, the same inner Trinitarian fellowship, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, We're placed into that when we are in the body of Christ. We are in Christ. We are in Christ. Seated at the right hand of the Father and the mind of God. All of those realities are our realities as we are in Christ. That's the specialness of the body of Christ. When we experience discipline, Jesus is just giving you what you need to correct you. The Holy Spirit's prompts and you know, pricks and different ways that he pokes us and shows us, oh, you need to change this, stop that, correct this. That's all, I'm gonna put you through this so that you learn that. <laughs> all of that is God's love. God's love to us, Proverbs three twelve. He reproves the, him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. There's delight in discipline. Hebrews twelve six, same thing. God promises to complete our sanctification because he's concerned for our holiness, but it's in the context of this loving relationship heading to heaven. Our intimate father, our father who's in heaven, heaven's his abode. Now, sometimes I think we, we equate heaven with God's nature. God's nature is holy and God is eternal, but God created the heavens and the earth. Now, I know that the heavens, the reference in Genesis 1-1 probably refers to atmospheric terra firma, that he created the heavens and the skies and the galaxies. But, but God, according to Colossians 1, which is a parallel passage, when he spoke everything into existence, all things were created. All things were created by him and for him, whether thrones, dominions, rulers, and authorities, visible and invisible, angels in heaven, Bowing in worship 
At the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow, every tongue confess in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. He created it all. The demons that went astray, all of that that he allowed for is part of the kingdom that he created. It all gives him glory, but heaven is where he made his abode and he created heaven. Now, with all that as background, with three minutes left, let me give you the first petition. The first petition is, hallowed be your name. You say, is that a petition? What are you talking about? Isn't that a declaration? Holy be your name. It's actually an imperative command. It's an aorist passive imperative, meaning that it's, it's something that is broad and it's just supposed to be happening and we're praying in light of what God is doing. And what is he doing? Hallowed be your name. What is, it, what is the petition here? Well, it's holy be your name spread throughout the earth. That's the idea. It's the request, Lord, I pray that your name and your fame and your glory will spread throughout the world. That's the request. The first thing we pray for is that God's fame and name and glory will be spread. How? In a holy way, set apart from the world. How does that happen? Well, one way is through the mission of evangelism when people believe 1 Peter 3.15 says Christ is set apart in our hearts when we are saved, we're made holy. So the spread of the gospel, the spread of the truth is really the fulfillment of this prayer request. The word name, hallowed be your name. The word name is always synonymous with all of who God is. It's not just the names of God, Jehovah Jireh, Jehovah Nisi, Adonai. Yahweh, these names help us understand God's character, but name is more comprehensive than that. It's everything that God is all the time. May your name, may, may you, all of you, God, be spread through all the world, everywhere. When we pray in Jesus' name, that's not a magic formula. It's praying in view of all of who Jesus is to us. He's our savior. He's our sacrifice. He's our redeemer. He's our intercessor. He's the bridge between God and man, the mediator, the one man, Christ Jesus. He is whom to whom we pray through. We pray to Jesus as our Lord, but we pray through him to God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. We pray through him and we pray According to his will, because as we pray for through the name of Christ, we understand that the Holy Spirit is taking our words and synchronizing them according to his will. That's what he, Jesus was talking about in John 14, 13. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Does that mean that we can just hocus pocus, ask for something and tack on in Jesus name, amen, and then believe for it that it's going to happen? No, it's you're praying with the knowledge that you're, that you are humbly with a humble posture coming through the savior, through Christ. That's why I say Jesus name in Jesus name for most of my prayers. I'm acknowledging that I'm coming through Christ and giving my humble request to him. And that if that request synchronizes with what God's will is, it's going to happen. That's what this is talking about. It's the power of prayer. First John five fourteen. this is the confidence, the confidence we have toward him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. If he hears us and whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. We don't know what God's will is until it's done, but we know what God's word says and how we're supposed to pray. And we pray these petitions and we're driving towards God's will as we pray. We pray through the name of Jesus and we're praying for God's holiness and witness to spread throughout the world. And guess what? That's going to happen. That's happening and is going to happen. With things seemingly getting worse, is it happening? Is God losing right now in terms of what he wants? No. We know the answer to this is no because of the second request. So let's look at petition number two. The second petition solves the dilemma that we might have wondering if God is winning or losing right now in our nation. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Let your holy name spread throughout the world. Verse 10, your kingdom come and your will be done as earth on earth as it is in heaven. So the second thing we pray for is we pray in view of God's kingdom 
that is now and not yet. First, we pray to a God who is near and far. We're praying that his name and fame will spread. Second, we pray in view of God's kingdom that is now and not yet. Guess what? God's kingdom work is happening now. And God's kingdom will be brought demonstratively in the future. So it's now and not yet. Second petition carries out the first. Praying for God's kingdom is functionally praying for God's name to spread. You have to understand what the kingdom is for this all to gel. What is God's kingdom? Well, it's not government. Do you hear me? It's not government. God's kingdom, this is an important point. God's kingdom is going to be built under any governance structure, liberal or conservative. God's kingdom is working. His kingdom plan is prevailing. His church is being built and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So what is God's kingdom? Well, it's not civil governance. It's not the government structure that was set up under Israel. That's a bygone era that pointed to a better era, which is the church. It's not the theonomic um, government of Israel, God's laws that governed, governed things. It was never to be replicated. Our nation was never supposed to become the new Israel. If you desire to make this place Israel or a nation that is replicating that, you're not really praying according to God's will. Yes, the pilgrims came. Yes, I love our country. Um, but the the idea that the pilgrims came and they left you know, England and that governance system to create a new one in the name of it being a new promised land, which is sort of the language they used, that's not synonymous with God's kingdom being built. It just isn't. The colonies was not the kingdom of God. It was a government. And there were believers as the founding fathers and there were unbelievers. There were those who were philosophers and people who were... Um, Deist and, and then there were believers. And so there is a Judeo-Christian ethic within our constitution. I'm thankful for our country. I'm thankful for the, the land that we live in. I thank God for it every day, right? And I pray for my governing authorities. But God's kingdom is way bigger than that. And if things get way worse and way weirder, that might actually crank up God's mission through us as a church in terms of what we need to do, what we need to say, and what we need to stand for. God's kingdom is working itself out. Jesus said as much to Pilate in John 18. Pilate was in passive ambivalence, accusing Christ of things um, in, in the name of the Jews. And he was trying to find out why he um, needed to be crucified in the mock trial that was happening on the night of his crucifixion. He said, what, ac what accusation do you bring against this man? And he found nothing from the Jews um, under Roman law to kill Christ. And he said, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law, John 18, 31. But um, Pilate's curiosity was piqued because there was no capital offense. The Jews actually wanted Jesus to do a political takeover. So there was confusion with all of this. So what was triggering this uh, bloodthirst from the crowd for Christ? John 18, 33 through 38, Pilate entered the headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? And Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? And Jesus answered this. And listen to this. This is super important. My kingdom is not of this world. If you want to pray for God's kingdom with vitality, you need to understand that first and foremost, Jesus' kingdom is not of this world. He says, my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting. I might be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from this world. That's the whole point. The Jews were rejecting Jesus, but they were rejecting his kingdom. Pilate said to him, so you are a king. And Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king for this purpose I was born. And for this purpose, I have come into the world to bear witness of the truth. How do we pray for God's kingdom to come? We pray that the truth of the gospel is brought to bear in our world. Pilate ultimately said, what is truth? He was missing the point entirely. After he said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. Jesus' kingdom comes down to one thing. He's king. He's reigning. 
He's ruling now. He rules in the way that this is all playing out. And as we spread the gospel, we're spreading God's name around the earth. As people get saved, they are taking Christ as Lord in their heart and they are, they are setting apart Christ as holy in their own lives, 1 Peter 3.15. The kingdom of God is being born in every single conversion. The kingdom of God is not eating or drinking, but righteousness, peace and joy in the Holy Spirit, Romans 13. And the kingdom of God is being built in every governing structure. When Jesus came, John the Baptist in Matthew 3, 2 said, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. In Mark 12, 34, um, Jesus said to the scribe, after the scribe began to understand truth, you are not far from the kingdom. The kingdom is present in every heart, every believer. Listen, things are going to get serious. I was watching a little documentary and it was, or it was a Q&A and a guy was referencing Calvin Seminary in Geneva, Switzerland. It was right outside of France and the French government and the French king was oppressing true Christians and Protestants in the name of Roman Catholicism, which was really their authority structure. And Calvin was a threat and he was preaching the word and it was going everywhere and he started a seminary and they retitled that seminary, the seminary of death, because if you graduated from that seminary, you were going to be martyred for the faith. And five graduates graduated and they were martyred immediately. The stakes are high as we live for Christ. And so how do we pray for the kingdom? You just pray for conversions. It's a practical way. Had a guy who came up here um, a couple years ago. He preached. He was an old school buddy of mine from Liberty. We were good friends. We went through preacher school together way back when as young, young sprites. And uh, he came up here to preach in Big Lake. And I grabbed him down here to also preach here. And uh, my big remembrance of him at college is he would pull me out of bed at 5 a.m. every morning. And basically it was for me to pray with him to pray for his family members. I would pray for some family members and things, but he would just list off methodically all these family members, cousins, uncles, brothers, sisters, da, da, this person, that. And then I thought, well, this is, it was fine to do. It was a good sacrifice. It was a good discipline work in prayer. And we sort of stopped doing it. Sophomore year, junior year, we'd be in Bible class together. And he would say, you know, during the open Share time, the teacher would say, let's have any prayer requests or praises. He'd say, my uncle just got saved. My cousin just got saved. Another semester, my, my this, my that, my sister, this person, that person, everybody on the list, they were all getting saved. That's the kingdom of God being built. It might not be as cool as changing laws or correcting moral decay. Those things are all well and fine, but the kingdom of God is being built. People are being saved through the meek and mild prayers in the secret place. It's just lining up with God's will. Where does this work itself out? Well, in two places, verse 10, it says, on earth as it is in heaven. Where is God's will being done on earth? Guess what? Right here. Church, church. You say, man, our world's falling apart. Our church isn't. I love our church. I love how it's going. I love people who are coming and people who are watching and the connectivity and the fellowship, the, the warmed up you know, fellowship group houses that are happening where people are preaching right now and all around the building, the children's ministry, the kingdom's being advanced. It's the church. That's where God's will is being done on earth as it is in heaven. That's the connection. This is the embassy here to another country where the truth is building kingdom citizens for God's glory. Praying with this mindset confirms your prayers with confidence that the mission is not failing. One final point. God's kingdom is being built when Jesus came, when he brought the kingdom, when he was advancing truth, as we advance truth, as people are being saved, God's kingdom is being built. God's name, his hallowed name is moving throughout the world through this work and then within our church and churches that are countercultural to earth. But finally, one day, his kingdom ministry will be demonstratively seen in the millennial kingdom that he sets up here for a thousand years on earth and then in the new heavens and the new earth. It's what John begged God for, Revelation twenty two twenty. Surely I'm coming, but even so, come Lord Jesus. So I want to I close with a 
turning our attention to a prayer. It's in John 17. Jesus uh, was praying in his intercessory prayer, his high priestly prayer in John 17. I just think it's so important for you to see this. Remember, we're not just praying a mantra here. We're praying petitions that God wants us to pray. These first two petitions for God's name and glory and holiness to spread throughout the world and for the kingdom to be built is exactly what Jesus prayed through in John 17. He modeled praying. So let's be those disciples and let's watch Jesus pray through the eyes of faith as I read John 17 and listen for these first two petitions I've just preached. They're over and over again expressed. John 17, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I've manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I've given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know the truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. I'm praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. I'm no longer in the world, but they're in the world. And I'm coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I've guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. For their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, and they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I've given them that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them.